When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast dissecting the world of business and finance. I'm Felix Salmon, the senior editor at Fusion here in New York with... Jordan Weissman and Kathy O'Neill, we're coming to them in a second. But I have to give you a teaser about what's coming up. We have the biggest, most important finance book of the week, Stress Test by Tim Geithner. We all read it, or at least a few pages of it. It's very big. (laughs) Um, We're also going to talk about Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF. And the fact that she's not going to be giving this commencement speech at Smith College this week. And we're also going to be talking about another bit of the education world, which is student loans and the fact that they seem to be very good at stopping people from buying houses. And at the end, as ever, we will have a lightning numbers round. I know that Kathy's number is 72. I don't know if that's a reference to the number of hours in three days or what we're about to find out. So let me introduce her, Kathy, the former hedge fund quant who's now a watchdog of all things Tim Geithner related. Welcome. Hi, Felix. And of course, Jordan Weissman, known to the entire world as the Moneybox columnist at Slate. The entire world. The entire world. But first, before we talk about Tim Geithner or Christine Lagarde or anything else, we have an update on last week's podcast where we talked about the planned IPO of the Chinese company Alibaba. And during the podcast, our intrepid producer attempted to buy something off Alibaba and didn't have a huge amount of success. But already we have the best listeners. We love you listeners. And one of them, Nick Sage, is a student at Portland State University, and he wrote in to let us know that he buys things pretty easily Get this on AlibabaExpress.com. Not Alibaba.com, but AlibabaExpress.com. This is geared to individual shoppers instead of the bulk deals that we managed to find last week. The reason why I went there is because I collect toys. I'm a a, a toy collector. 
And so um, there's a lot of stuff um, in China that is just easier to get in China and actually cheaper even when you add the, uh, the shipping fees. And so I finally just broke down and bought like a little $25 purchase and it worked fine and I've been doing it ever since. That was Nick Sage. Thank you very much. Go ahead and buy cheap things from China on alibabaexpress.com or I guess just at your local Walmart. So wait, does this mean we're not getting the bulk sweatshirts that we were promised? I, I think, sadly, that the Slate Money hoodies might need to get put on the back burner for the time being. Although you never know if we get a sponsor for this show, anything is possible. You're breaking my heart, Felix. Breaking it. In any case, we're going to start with Tim Geithner. We have here in the studio a signed copy of Stress Test. It is a huge book, big and heavy and 580 pages long and $35. Kathy, what is going on here? Well, Tim Geithner uh, wrote this book and it came out on Monday. And if for people who don't, who've been, who've been dead for the last 10 years, let me just mention that um, Tim Geithner was head of the New York Fed during the credit crisis and he helped um, bail out a bunch of banks. Um, he helped orchestrate that. And then he was brought in by Obama to be this, uh, the Treasury Secretary in 2009 after TARP. Jordan, what did you think of this book so far? So, you know, my initial reaction to it was sort of just on a, on a human level. I found it, um, I found it, it just kind of intriguing the character kind of Geithner makes, creates for himself, uh, or creates of himself. Do you think this is a character, or do you think this is him? Oh, this is absolutely a, I mean, you know, it's, I think it's absolutely, any memoir is a character, right? I mean, um, especially when you're a public figure. But, you know, I used to live in Washington, and I lived in, in Washington 2009, and I, I would walk by the Treasury um, on a, n- a number of evenings late at night and coming home from work. And a lot of time I, I would see the third floor light, like one or two lights on the third floor. And I'd, I'd sort of imagine that Tim Geithner was in there alone just banging his head on the desk. Because this, this was when essentially no nominees could get through Congress. And it turns out I was wrong. Um, what it was was Tim Geithner was essentially sitting there getting yelled at by Larry Summers about how we should nationalize the banks. Um, and what, what, one of the things you kind of get from this book, I think, aside from the merits of the policy, is just how threadbare the group of people, you know, the kind of the Treasury was at that point when they were making these massive decisions. And essentially you had this small group of people who had been under siege for months at that point, some of them like Geithner, who were trying to figure out how to save the world and didn't have a lot of, you know, didn't have the ability to bring in a lot of extra hands. And it, it's just kind of a, a reflection of this, what a weird moment we were in history. And, and part of this is structural. I have to complain as an Englishman in America about the absolutely insane system of the way the civil service is run in this country when you have a switch in parties in the White House. And we managed to switch parties in the White House right in the middle of the worst crisis in living memory. And when that happens, every single senior civil servant gets turfed out. And it takes months for new senior civil servants to come in. And so you have this massive vacuum at the top of Treasury and at the top of every other major government department just when you need everyone working really hard on the problems to hand. Um, Kathy, did you reach that part of the book? Does Timmy talk about that at all? Well, yeah. I mean, he talks about that in the introduction, in fact. But it, it, it's important to keep in mind that he went from the New York Fed to the Treasury. So it, he didn't actually, you know, we didn't miss him. He was constantly <laughs> he working. Was the only thing. <laughs> him and Bernanke. Listen, but. I, I, I'm going to 
I'm going to make two points about this book because, and they really have nothing to do with Timmy Geithner, and I don't really care about that guy. Um, but I'm glad to bring up these two points because he brings them up, and um, and Andrew Ross Sorkin did in the profile, and they just it needs to be said. Namely, the first one is that. He, he just keeps framing it as a, his his story as a success because we didn't lose money on the bailout. And, you know, first of all, it was that's an absolute, you know, tot- tautological statement because we they, we had the power when I say we, I mean, Larry Summers and Tim Geithner to make sure that we could not lose money because we just propped up the banks and we did all these things and we're continuing to do those things through the Fed quantitative easing program. So we cannot lose money. So it's actually wait, wait, completely is that true because I seem to recall a lot of bank bailout programs in many countries, including the US with the SNL crisis, which did not make money. That's because we let banks fail back then. But but now we don't. And now like the whole point of this book is, I will not let any banks fail. I will prop them up until they are successful. I will inject capital until that's true. And that brings me to the second point, which is, it's an ironic title. He calls a book stress test. But he, when, he, when he describes what he meant when he developed these stress tests at the Treasury, he, they actually meant um, that to, a, a test for banks to show that they were uh, solvent, but they were, by construction, allowed to um, value their mortgage-backed securities, the toxic securities that were making them insolvent. They were allowed to value them um, at much higher prices than the market would actually bear at that time. So by definition, by construction, they were lying. And even Larry Summers made that point, like, hey, you're actually letting them lie. And James Geithner's b- response in the book, he even says it, is, oh, well, let, let's let the stress test tell us whether whether the banks are okay. You know, so it, it was it was a... Self-fulfilling prophecy. Okay, but okay. Well, hang on a sec, Kathy. I surely, in the grand scheme of things, and this is this is Tim Geithner's argument, but I can't say I completely disagree with him on it. What you're saying is a defense. It's basically exactly what he's saying. He's saying we have the power to rescue the banks. We have the power to make sure they're not insolvent, to declare them solvent. We can make sure that no more banks fail after Lehman and that the economy doesn't collapse. If you have that power as Treasury Secretary, do you not have to use it? Well, and that's and that's what I want to... Now I want to move on to Tim Geithner himself. The thing about Tim Geithner is he claims to be profoundly unqualified for every job he took. He says that in the book. And and there are certain things that you just believe when people say them. Like you ask somebody a house on a scale of one to 10, how sexual are you? And they say four. You're like, I believe you. As, and nobody would say that if, if they weren't a four. Okay. Similarly, Tim Geithner is like, I was unqualified for this, but I somehow got this job. Then I was unqualified. For, and then Larry Summers loved me. So he promoted me. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I can't help read this and think to myself, oh, this is what white male privilege looks like. This is how it feels. I mean, the truth of the matter is, because he didn't have any economics training, he'd never really understood banking, I don't think. He, there's no re- evidence that he did. He only had this binary, narrow view of the world. And the, 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 it was the either or. Either we preserve the banking system as it is in exactly this form with bonuses and everything. Or the world ends. And he never thought beyond that. He, you know, you mentioned that Larry Summers wanted to nationalize the banks, but it's like Tim Geithner had, had no capacity to have the third option in his head. Well, so, I, I, you know, I do, I, I do think the, uh, 
the un- his repeating how underqualified he was is is part of his constructing this character um where he he almost tries to make he tries throughout the book to make himself a little bit more relatable there's a lot of cursing you know he tries there, there's a lot of profanity um you know he refers to his speech about how his speech his first like grand appearance in front of congress just sucked like that's his word the speech his words the speech sucked um and i think there's a lot of kind of false uh humility there but you know, you know, I mean, his grand theory throughout this book is essentially the banking is a confidence game, which is not too innovative. But I, I think that, you know, that, you know, maybe he couldn't maybe he didn't have the capacity to think for that third option. But I do think he makes a strong argument that at least if, if you do show this overwhelming force. And you do, you know, sit there and say, I'm going to back everything. You can at least stop a run. And that's what he specialized in. It was stopping runs. Yeah. So this is this is clear. I think we're agreed on this, yeah. that he felt that it was very important to preserve the banking system. He did everything he could to preserve the banking system. He succeeded. And he did so at very little cost to the U.S. taxpayer. Oh well, I would, I would, I'm, I was going to agree with you until that last line, which is, you know, it's not about the money so much; it's about the risk we now have. And risk, when you take it on, which we still have, the taxpayer, we are still backing the, the banks. We that can cost money in the future. So depending uh, on how you this value, is, this is this is known as moral hazard, and sadly. We don't have a huge amount of time to discuss moral hazard, but we do get to continue talking about the international financial architecture, because we're going to talk about Christine Lagarde, who is, I think we would probably all agree around this table, a a more successful crisis fighter than Tim Geithner in many ways. She's good at creating consensus around doing things where she needs to get 15 different European countries to agree with her and get on the same page rather than just one president, which is obviously harder. Um, Anyway, so Christine Lagarde was invited to give the commencement speech this year at Smith College, which is this college up in Massachusetts. And 494 students got very upset about this. And they said that she runs this, the, the, the International Monetary Fund. The International Monetary Fund is somehow vaguely big and evil and we don't like it. And therefore, it's unconscionable that she be invited. So she basically got uninvited and replaced. You you couldn't make this up. She got replaced by this woman, Ruth Simmons, who was on the board of Goldman Sachs between (laughs) 2000 and 2010, just when it was in the height of the credit boom, when it was taking on all of these risks, this is the woman who was in charge of paying Lloyd Blankfein $69 million in 2007 <laughs> when he was bringing on all of the risks. Kathy, what on earth is going on here? Well, you know, I my theory about sexism and women and et cetera is that, you know, we know sexism is gone when men women get to be as shitty as men. And... Um, <laughs> And, you know, so I, I'd like to move on past, like, this question of should should Smith students um, appreciate a powerful woman even if she's kind of an asshole? I mean, if you look at the what, what, what Lagarde – well, if you look at what Lagarde said about Greeks, about the Greek tax <laughs> – you know, oh, if you guys want want to want help, just pay your tax. You know, she's very unsympathetic. She's very – you know, she's a typical IMF 
person. And you say consensus, but IMF really is technocratic. When you say consensus, you mean among other technocrats, not certainly not among people. And I think the Smith College students were responding to that. They're they're saying they're they're saying, yes, we we want you know role models, but that she's not our role model just because she has a vagina. Can I come to Lagarde's somewhat defense, which is? Yeah, I do find this kind of ironic that of, of all the people to have headed the IMF, uh, she's the one getting you know uh, tossed out of a commencement you know uh, event. Uh, the IMF is in, in the last few years at least kind of moved back to the left in a lot of response, uh, ways. It's come out against austerity. It's ta- it's talking about inequality. This is this is you know these are small steps by mo- by you know. Uh, you know, a lot of our standards, but it's a big step for the, this institution that it's really associated with the Washington Consensus. You know, you know, fiscal so so associated with. To come back to Tim Geithner, you know, he has a he worked at the IMF uh, for a couple of years and more or less covers them in the space of about two paragraphs in this book. He doesn't spend much time on on that period of his career. But he does say that he hated it, basically, and that it's just an unbelievably sluggish and bureaucratic place to work. And that it's much less fun. He uses the word fun to work than treasury, which, (laughs) you know, kind of gives you an idea. And I have to say back to what you were saying, Jordan, about how this is a persona and he's being, you know, falsely modest. I don't think so. I think this is actually him. I've met Tim Geithner a few times. Uh, You know, he's... guileless individual. He actually does believe all of the modest things that he says about himself. And he loves talking about how he's not a politician, how he can't talk in public, how he can't communicate big ideas. Um, And he knows this is a big weakness of himself. And I I think he's genuinely much more aware of his weaknesses than he is of whatever strengths he might have. So what you're saying is that he's so good at constructing this character in this memoir because actually it's just him. He's not working that hard to construct anything. Or, or, or he's been constructing this character for many years. It's okay. none, none of this came as any surprise to me after having spoken to him over the years. So, I mean, am I, am I wrong to think that, you know, protesting someone like Lagarde is sort of um, – very 1999 uh, of Smith College that <laughs> they're essentially, or or do you think that I uh, am I am I giving the IMF too much credit here? I'm going to yeah, foreshadow our third discussion about student debt to make the point that colleges and universities have become increasingly commercial. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a response to the cynical choices that colleges and universities make for their uh, commencement speakers and for their trustees. I just find out just, it, you know, side notes as we're doing side notes. <laughs> Ina Drew is now a trustee of Barnard College. Um, you know, Ina, Ina Drew of the CIO office for the, um, the, the London Whale. Who was forced to resign in disgrace uh, yes. from J.P. Morgan. Exactly. So my, my point is that, you know, who, who actually chooses the, the commencement speakers, the trustees? And why do we choose trustees for money? This whole thing is about money. And, and just to close the circle here, Christine Lagarde was getting paid $35,000 to give this speech, which is not bad for a speech, really. No. It's probably not Tim Geithner rates. And, and, <laughs> and it does show, and I'm going to use this to segue into the third part of the podcast here. It does show what's happening to the costs in higher education. That Graduates of most big, famous liberal arts colleges kind of expect to be given a fun time at their commencement. And that's the least of the costs that the colleges incur. Obviously, we're seeing massive 
inflation in the amount that the administrators are getting paid. The students are getting much more lavish accommodations. There are climbing walls all over the place. And somehow you put all of this together and you get massive cost inflation in universities, the result of which, a result of which, is massive student loan inflation. Student loans are increasing way, way faster than any other form of debt in the country. And they're a huge burden on an entire generation of Americans. So, Jordan, what is the implicate what is the latest consequence of this that we've just discovered so uh there, there's been this ongoing discussion about you know what is student loan debt going to do to gen y economically to the millennials financially you know we're the first generation to essentially graduate up to our eyeballs in uh, student debt and that's actually a technical term up to your eyeballs is a certain threshold. how much how much debt do you have jordan <laughs> um i'm not going to say publicly that between my fiance and i we have a, a sizable uh debt to deal with but it's um and so you know this is a uh it's kind of uncharted territory right we've never it's never been this broad and the debt has never been distributed this broadly and the debt burdens have never been this big so you're starting to get groups like the new york uh federal reserve bank of new york for instance researching um the effects on things like whether or not young people are buying houses and uh, this week they came out with their second now it's becoming an annual report on um you know the difference in mortgage applications between essentially uh, between people who have student debt and young people who don't have student debt. And what they found is that before the recession, if you had student loans, you were also more likely to take out a mortgage. Now, if you have student loans, you're less likely. And this is you know one of the data points that people are starting to use to say student debt is actually holding back the recovery. Um, because what we need in in good Tim Geithner fashion here for a strong recovery is more people taking out more debt to buy more houses, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> so we want, you know, it's really hard to have a recovery uh, without a housing recovery. And I thought that was actually one of the, the weakest points of Geithner's book, just to go back to that. He actually writes off housing's effect on the, and basically excuses the very weak mortgage modification programs the, the uh, Obama administration created and saying they wouldn't have helped that much anyway, even if they were more successful, which I thought... Thank you very much. And I, by the way, I wanted to mention <laughs> yeah. that I, I searched, I have the Kindle version of the book for, um, you know, because I couldn't remember seeing it, but I searched for robo-signing, never mentioned. The guide does not acknowledge the um, the perverse incentives of the of HAMP, of the housing modification. Uh, yeah. more- Meanwhile, I, you know, since we're disappearing, digressing down, <laughs> yeah, well. Timmy-shaped Timmy paths here throughout the entire <laughs> podcast, the, I, I did a search on the word confidence. And it appears 150 times in the book and then another five times in the index. So <laughs> it, it, and no matter where you are in the financial cycle, he, it, this appears constantly throughout the book. Geithner wants to be improving confidence. Yeah. And that's all he – and, and yes. confidence is, of course, as we've said already uh, – synonym for bankers' bonuses, I think. Um, yes. And he never actually learns how the market actually works, by the way. That's another one of my pet peeves. But let me go back to the student debt issue. It's In both cases, Tim Geithner and the student debt issue, in some sense, we're trying to solve the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. Tim Geithner is trying to solve the problem of confidence without actually solving the structural problems. And in the student debt stuff, we're trying to um, solve the problem of students not also getting mortgage debt, when in fact, we should probably try to address why colleges are costing more and more. I, I agree with that about 
65% of the way, maybe 70% of the way. And I'll, let me tell you why. <laughs> I'm so, so glad you can quantify yeah. so finely. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, masterful at that. Um, but the uh, uh, whereas I had up to my eyeballs in debt before. Um, but what the reason why I disagree a little is yes, the fundamental challenge is the cost of college, no question, and finding a way to rein that in. However, um, there's this secondary issue, which is this problem with students paying back their loans and kind of the, the, the bizarre system that we have for student debt repayment involving all these loan servicers like Sally Mae and, you know, private companies that don't necessarily always have the best intentions and, and debt collectors and whatnot. And coming back to this, pe- you know, whether or not people with student loans buy houses issue, if you look at students who um, ha- are current on their debt, they are no less likely, in fact, they're more likely to take out a mortgage than other young adults. If you look at students who are behind on their debt or delinquent, um, they're the ones who don't take out mortgages at all. And there's a growing number of delinquent students out there. And the thing about delinquencies and defaults in student debt is it's not always because the debts are so huge or because they are uh, so hard or that because they have you know such low incomes. Often it's because of this horrible debt repayment system we have. And so if we could reform that in some substantive way and their ideas for that, then maybe you know some people wouldn't have their finances ruined. Let me let me give you another perspective. And sure. it didn't actually say the articles that we I looked at this week didn't actually explain whether the people who aren't taking out mortgages actually applied for mortgages and were rejected. Well, they're not going to apply for mortgages if they're delinquent on their student loans. Well, they know they're not right. going to be. So let me let me try to make a suggestion for what's actually going. What one of the things that's actually going on, which is um, that the the black students' enrollment went up by thirty five percent between two thousand three and two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. But most of that enrollment was for for profit companies, for profit colleges, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those students often don't graduate. So that might be one reason. Absolutely. They take on debt but don't graduate. Mm-hmm. I and mean, you can see why they won't have the, a job to pay back their student loans. And moreover, $32 billion went from the United States government to for-profit colleges in the, in the, in the form of, of, of student loan grants. Um, and, you know, so it's all I'm just trying to say is this isn't happening to everyone equally. The student debt crisis is happening to certain populations more. And that money is, is going to private private for-profit colleges who are predatory. By kids, the way... Kids, don't go to for-profit colleges. It's a bad idea. You probably won't graduate and you'll just wind up saddled with a whole bunch of debt which you can't discharge even in bankruptcy. Nope. Can't do it. I just <laughs> wanted to also mention that, you know, the, the University of Phoenix parent company was the biggest buyer of Google Ads uh, for one of the quarters in 2013. So it's not like it is this minor issue. This is a huge issue. Can we go back one more time down the Timothy Geithner, Geithner <laughs> rabbit hole? <laughs> so there one was, more Geithner rabbit hole. Rabbit hole. So there, there's this thing about, again, coming back to the persona at the beginning of the book is he does this and the unqualified thing, right? Um, he spends a lot of time talking about how he wasn't a very good student and how he didn't grow up that privileged. And, you know, he's just like, oh, you know, my parents were, you know, aid work or they they worked for nonprofits around the world. And, you know, I went to these, you know, American schools and wherever, uh, India and whatnot. And I just I just kind of wanted to scream the entire time because basically while he was you know, kind of pulling the humility card, he was outlining a childhood in which he was, the you know, the son of a family who were important, you know, global development workers the father had gone to Dartmouth. He ended up going to Dartmouth himself, probably on legacy, then oh, was yeah. able to go to grad school for a while. He actually mentions his, his guilt feelings about getting in as a legacy to Dartmouth. Yeah. Oh, it's right. He does. But then, you know, but then he goes back to the, oh, well, you know, but then 
he tries to do a thing at the beginning where he's like, oh, I wasn't really that privileged. He does say that he had an unbelievably privileged lifestyle, you know, especially when you're in places like India or Indonesia. Well, he said he felt the gap between American yeah. and he felt like the gap between American standards of living and, and you know, uh, foreign but standards of living. Certain, certainly he what that does, what growing up in abroad does is it makes you feel alienated from the sort of waspy establishment when you come back. And I think that's undeniable. I do want to add, though, that, you know, he spends so much time in this book talking about how he doesn't care that much about money, but he cares so much about power. He, you know, it's like power porn. He remembers every (laughs) word that President Bush or Obama said to him or Larry Summers, for that matter. The guy is, you know, some people like money, some people like power. On which note, we are going to wrap up with the numbers of the week. And I know that Kathy has 72, so I'm going to wait even longer to find out what that means. Jordan, what's yours? Uh, 35% or negative uh, 35%, which is h- how much less uh, the government now gives in transfer payments to uh, a single mother fam- or a, a single parent family that lives under 50% of the poverty line compared to uh, the 1980s. Uh, there was some research that recently came out just showing essentially how the entire safety net has shifted um, from the very poorest Americans over to the moderately poor, which has a lot to do with the end of welfare as we know it during Clinton and whatnot. Um, and it just kind of a reminder that the uh, we know we now support the people who don't quite need it the absolute most at the expense of the people who do sometimes. So, so just to be clear here, if you're a single mother with getting welfare payments, those payments today are thirty five percent lower than they were when uh, in the eighties okay. in inflation adjusted dollars. Okay, my number is. 100,000. This is, I think, going to be a, a theme of this week's podcast. Um, quick quiz between you two. Do, do either of you know who Phil Taubman is? Does that no. name ring any bell? No. 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 It sounds like he might be like a prog rock musician <laughs> or something. Phil, get- Phil Taubman was the guy who took over from Jill Abramson as Washington bureau chief of the New York Times. <laughs> Couldn't have been more right. <laughs> $100,000 is the amount that Phil Taubman got paid over and above what Jill Abramson got paid for doing exactly the same job of Washington bureau chief of the New York Times, which I think needs no further commentary. What does your 72 refer to, Kathy? My 72 is yet another plunge <laughs> down the toilet of Tim Geithner, uh, which is <laughs> I thought we were done with Timmy. which is the number of times he used the phrase moral hazard in his book, and almost every single time was a dismissive, if not derisive, mention of the people that were Old Testament vengeance fundamentalists, uh, moral hazard fundamentalists, basically dismissing anyone's concern that what we're doing might be the wrong thing to do. This podcast has been brought to you by Crown Books, publisher of <laughs> Stress Test by Timothy Geithner, available at all good bookstores for $35 or probably even less on Amazon. I promise no Geithner next week, and don't hold me to that promise. That's it for this edition of Slate Money. Do write to us with your comments, kudos, complaints, and anything, everything at slatemoney at slate.com. The producers for Slate Money are... Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon. We'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. 
To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.